All right, so today we are going to talk about love. We are doing a series called Relationship Resolutions. Today is the first study. Uh, we're going to go through a couple of various scriptures. Usually what we do here in Calvary Chapel is go verse by verse through the entire Bible. Um, but I think every now and then it's good to do some topical messages to really focus in on one thing. And uh, so if you're taking notes, the title of this message is Guard Your Heart. Guard Your Heart. This might be the message that you hate the most <laughs> out of all the messages we're going to do. Um, because I'm going to be poking at a lot of the things that our culture values, um, but is not biblical. So don't hate me yet. Uh, stick around till the, the end of the series, and hopefully, hopefully you'll, uh, you'll see that it's not me, it's the Lord. Uh, and just so you know, we're going to be collecting questions because at the end of the series, my wife and I are going to do Q&A to answer any of the questions that come up, which I'm sure are going to be plenty because we're covering a lot of ground. So tonight we're going to talk about guarding your heart. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to really understand what it is that you want to say to your church tonight. Help us to walk away with a better understanding of your love and uh, a love for our neighbors. So, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love is a powerful force. It's all in our, our art, movies, books, music. Captivates our minds, our imaginations. And it can drive people to do a lot of crazy things, right? People do a lot of things because of love. Some people change the way that they look. You want to look good. And so the person that you like might like a certain shade of hair color, and so you dye your hair, whatever, may actually cause you to make some huge life decisions. I mean, everybody knows that one person that, like, moved to be closer to their significant other. You know, like, the guy who just was kind of crazy, like, found somebody online, dating someone in a different state, and is like, all right, I'm in love with you. I'm moving in with you. And it just, like, happens out of nowhere. They change everything about what they do and who they are for somebody else. Love is so powerful that it can even cause people to sacrifice themselves for somebody else, to physically lay down their life. You've heard about the Aurora shootings where uh, the boyfriend actually died for his girlfriend and took a bu bullet for her. Love can cause us to do crazy things. Actually, four years ago, there was a, a Dutch man in the news. His name was Alexander Kirk, who flew from Holland to China to be able to meet his online girlfriend named Zhang. The problem was she never showed up. He was in the airport for 10 days straight and refused to leave and eventually was taken to the hospital for exhaustion. And at the end of the 10 days, the news reporters interviewed this woman, Zhang, and said, why did, why did you show up? And she said, I thought he was just joking. I didn't know he was actually flying from Holland to, to China. And he never met her. Isn't that sad? But even though we may not go to that kind of an extreme, like we would call that guy kind of crazy, we can understand that love 
drives people to do things that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And this is why it's so important that we do what the scripture tells us, which is Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Now, we, we tend to make choices in the direction of the things that we love, right? It's almost like you're on autopilot. Like, at first, you're like, you have a crush on somebody. On Instagram, you don't know. You slide into their DMs. Or you meet someone cute at church, and you just find yourself asking them out or buying them flowers or whatever. You know, for me, uh, when I was engaged to Jenna, the first thing I was thinking about is like, okay, the, the, the way that I can love her is I'm a very scheduled, detailed, organizational person, so I'm going to plan the whole wedding. And I immediately, for the moment I proposed, I was like ready to book the venue, and I was just doing all the work. For me, I know that's rare for like guys to do that, but for me, that was a way for me to show love to my fiance at the time, who's now my wife. And though it was a lot of work, it never really felt like work. And maybe you've experienced that before. When you love somebody, it never really feels like a chore. Well, I mean, I, okay, I take that back. Sometimes <laughs> you have to do things and you don't feel like it. But when you are under the spell of love, right, you start doing things that you wouldn't do otherwise. You want to impress them. You want to bless them. Now, here's the problem. The world says something completely different. It says, Follow your heart. Discover your truth. If it feels right, it can't be wrong. But there's a problem with that. If we're not critical about our own thoughts and feelings, we wind up hurting ourselves and hurting other people. We can't just simply just follow our heart, right? It can cause you to go down directions that may not be healthy. Imagine telling a father who's unhappy in his marriage to follow his heart into infidelity. Right? Like that's, he's bitter, he's upset, and so he has an opportunity and he takes it to cheat on his wife. And we would say that's wrong. It's wrong to follow your heart in that instance. So then this is where people go, okay, okay, well, follow your heart unless you're going to hurt somebody else. But that's still problematic too, because that's the foundation of a toxic relationship. Right? Well, I don't want to hurt this person. They said that they're going to be lost without me. They said that they're going to, you know, they'll, they'll never be able to move on. So I just have to stay in this relationship. And so here's the problem. What takes priority? Your feelings or their feelings? Your pain or their pain? How do you make that kind of decision? So it can't just be follow your heart as long as you don't hurt anybody else. There has to be some other way to determine whether or not our heart is worth following. Now, the Bible says, not follow your heart, but guard your heart. There's a huge difference between the two. Because one acknowledges that our hearts have the ability to direct our lives, but the things that we love are not always right. So the question is, are you loving the right thing, the right person? So Christianity is kind of known for being a stickler with rules around relationships. Like, if you're not a Christian, you probably just think of, okay, Christians, romance, love. It's probably, like, some weird rules about, like, okay, well, 
you can, you can only marry, like, a man can only marry a woman, and you can't have sex before marriage. That's kind of like their understanding of Christianity and what it believes and teaches about love. But everybody has sexual ethics. Everybody has rules around the way that you perform sex or love or enter into relationship, marriage. And to not have any kind of moral imperatives around love and sex would to be ignorant of the enormous amounts of power it has for good or for evil. So to say, like, well, just do whatever you want is to completely dismiss the fact that you could ruin your life and somebody else's life. So everybody has to have some kind of code of conduct when it comes to love and sex. And what, what Christianity is saying is it's not about having no restraints. It's about having the right ones. True freedom isn't just doing whatever you want. It's about being able to do uh, whatever it is that you want within certain constraints. As an example, think about music. For musicians to play together and say, well, I just, I'm going to play whatever I want. Whatever time signature, whatever key, I'm just going to play whatever I want. You're going to have noise. If you want to make music, you have to define what's our time signature. What key are we playing in? And then people can have freedom to create within those constraints, and you create something beautiful. In a similar way, Christianity is saying, God instituted marriage, love, created sex, and gender. And because of those things, he knows the code. He knows how you're going to be able to flourish, to be able to get the most joy, and avoid the most pain, because he's the one who is behind it and designed it. And so for Christians... Like for me, and I'm married, and I have four kids. What I do is I limit myself and give myself in marriage to one woman and give myself to my family in order to flourish it. So the world says, follow your heart. The Bible says, guard your heart. And that's because it sets the trajectory of your life. And I think at this point, it's worth saying, like, so many people are so lost because they followed their heart. They followed their desires. I mean, isn't it true that like there's that one person that you had the hugest crush on and, and you, you thought they would be everything and then like you got them and they weren't, right? Or somebody who's following their heart and they find themselves addicted to pornography. Or someone who's struggling with their gender identity and, and they get a transition or they're, they're acting out a different way and it's still, there's still that hole in their heart. Something's wrong. It wasn't enough. So tonight, what we're going to do is I'm going to give you three ways the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, can guard our heart. I think I'm going to put it up on the screen. Three ways. Number one is the gospel gives us an identity that cannot be crushed. Number two, a high calling and fulfilling work for both single and married people. And number three, grounding for the gifts of sex and gender. So we'll go through that slowly, and maybe it'll come on the screen eventually. But number one, an identity that cannot be crushed. So you guys probably have had this story happen a billion times. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I just know this happens all the time. You guys will have a friend, a guy and a girl perhaps, who started dating and immediately... They, like, lost every other friendship. 
right? They only hung out with each other all the time. Everything they did was always with each other. And they started, like, almost being combative with everybody else. It's like us versus the world kind of a thing. And because they were always together all the time and didn't have any other friends, what happens when they break up? They're devastated. They're lost because they found their identity in each other. All their hopes and dreams and aspirations were built in each other, and it's devastating. Now, the Bible says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's because all of your time, your hopes, your dreams, effort, everything was wrapped up in that other person. And when you lose it, it's, it's almost like, uh, maybe you're old enough for this, but like, remember, remember like memory cards and video games and like you're playing an RPG forever, like 120 hours or something, and then your memory card gets erased. And then instantly you're like, your world just crumbles, right? Because all the time, like you first, you, you like stayed home from school and skipped school and played video games all day. And like all that time is just lost, right? And so it is with people that make what the Bible calls an idol out of somebody else. That's when your identity is wrapped up in something other than God. It's called idolatry. Now, idols, remember, like in ancient times, these statues that people would worship. But the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. See, idols don't have to just be objects of gold, silver, whatever. They could be in your heart that you've made an idol. You made it a good thing into an ultimate thing. Romans chapter 1, verse 25 speaks of idolatry by saying that these people exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God gives us good gifts. Sex is a good gift from God. He gives us relationships, a good gift from God, a job, or money. These are all gifts from God to, to point us to the creator and, and, and make us go, wow, God is so good. I can't believe I got the bonus. I can't believe I got, you know, whatever. All those things are to point us to the good God behind those things. But when we make those things into an idol, that good thing becomes a thing that we worship. We slave after. Now all you can think about is how to make more money. All you can think about is how to be able to make that person want you, right? So these are idols in your heart. I started a conference, many of you probably were there, uh, called Vertical Identity. And the whole point behind that is a lot of people find their identity in somebody else, a horizontal relationship. But biblically, what we're supposed to do is find our identity in our creator. And that's the only place that'll make you secure enough to have a relationship with somebody else. So the tagline we had was, who you are is more than who you're with. That you are more valuable than the equation of you plus somebody else. But people's self-worth will often be tied up in somebody else's affirmation or rejection. You're like hanging on every other word that this person says about you. That, that is the making of an abusive relationship, Right? Like you were crushed by their insults and then you're lifted up every time that they praise you. Now for some people, especially single people, your greatest fear is to be alone forever, right? 
And that's why perhaps you jump from relationship to relationship. That's probably why you message people that you're really not interested in, but you're flirting with them anyway because you want to be affirmed. You want somebody to acknowledge that you are valuable. Pastor Tim Keller talks about uh, this concept in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says this, making an idol out of love may mean allowing the lover to exploit you and abuse you, or it may cause terrible blindness to the pathologies in the relationship. An idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold onto it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. When we have idols in our hearts, you can't help but serve that idol. It's what drives the course of your life. So what, what does it look like to have an idol? Well, what are things that you daydream about? What are the things that are the, the goal and the target of your aspirations, your greatest dreams, your worst nightmare? What is the most sensitive subject that provokes your emotions? The highest emotions you have, fear, you're, you're in a state of euphoria. What are those emotions uh, as a result of? And here, here's the real test. So about 10 years ago, when I was in a, a screaming band, hard to believe, oh, maybe it's longer than 10 years ago now. Not, probably 10 years ago. I was in a screaming hardcore band. I was a singer. I know it's a surprise to many of you, but I was. I was very good at it. Very good at screaming, although I don't really use it with my kids. Only sometimes. And uh, I really believe that God wanted me to be a musician and I was going to tour and tell people about Jesus and all those things. And uh, the part that was disappointing was I felt like I was the only one who really cared in my band. Everybody else was getting married or they were, you know, going to Bible college. And they were slowly dismantling the band. So I taught myself how to play music because I was so convinced that this must be my path. And all the while I was listening to this pastor named Tim Chaddock who had a church in L.A. at the time. And I was listening to a message every single day as I was doing like band promotion stuff. And uh, I remember he was talking about idolatry. And there's always like, anytime people talk about idolatry in, in sermons, you're always just like trying to zone out. And like, it's not that thing. I know it's not that thing. I'm, it's not an idol. I'm good. Totally fine. I can live without it, you know? And so he was talking about this concept. And, I, and so I was driving with my, uh, my guitarist and we were, we were talking about life. And I said to him, you know what, if God told me out of nowhere to work a nine-to-five job, I would do it, but I think I'd be devastated. And the very next day, I'm listening to a sermon, and he says, how do you know if something's an idol? He said, if it's taken away, are you devastated? He said the exact same phrase, and I went, oh, no, what do I do? Right? So I know this is a popular question, like, how do you know God's voice? That's God's voice, right? Like, it's unmistakable. And it's usually when I'm doing something wrong that God tells me and like speaks the clearest. So are you devastated? And that's the question I pose for you. How do you know if something's an idol? Would it be your worst nightmare to lose that thing that you wouldn't even want to live? You couldn't move on. And so I wonder, is it possible that you could be a Christian, that you worship God, we sing the music, you know, but you, you have a competing God in your heart. It's not that you're against Jesus. It's just Jesus plus something else. But what I'm telling you is 
whatever you worship that isn't God will fail you. It's going to happen. It will devastate you. You have no choice about that because everything besides God is not perfect. And if you have God-like expectations on your significant other, your wife or your husband, whatever, there will be a moment they disappoint you. And what happens? You snap. I can never trust you ever again. It wasn't that big of a deal, right? But like for you, they were God. And the fact that they failed you now means, well, I I gotta break up with them. I I had no idea that they were going to be this kind of a person. But you see, if your identity is in Christ, then those relationships that you have, although you you want to be able to trust people, right? You have the power to forgive because you know how you've hurt God and he still pursued you and loved you unconditionally. You understand, if God loved me this much that no matter how many times I've hurt him, he still chases after me. Now suddenly, every other relationship... Though you'll be hurt, you won't be devastated. You won't be utterly ruined because your ultimate hope isn't in somebody else. And that's the challenge for you. Today, do you have your identity in a person or do you have an identity that cannot be crushed because Christ is the one who gives you that identity? Matthew 6, verse 19 uh, through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus is saying, whatever you trust in that's not God is temporary. It could be your job. What happens when you lose your job? It could be your health. And what happens when you lose your health? But if you store up your treasures in God, if you're investing your time, energy, emotion, hopes, dreams, aspirations in God, he will never fail you. Now, maybe you're not in a relationship and you're single and for you, it feels like a curse, right? I was there. I was single up until I was 28. So I know basically my entire 20s being a single person and it's not for lack of trying. Some of you were those people that try to help me. It didn't work, but I appreciate it. And I remember just like every single conversation I had with literally everybody is always about, so when are you going to start dating somebody? When are you gonna, like, as if I'm not trying, right? <laughs> it's like, I, I had literally, and some of you already know this, but like I would guest teach at somebody else's church and he would pray for me being single and introduce me. He's like, hey, ladies, you know, he's single before I teach. And like, nobody's going to want to talk to me afterwards, right? Like literally I had like, like three guys and like zero ladies talk to me afterwards because that's, that's how I was introduced. I've had elders here at the church pray for me in my singleness and like in a prayer circle. So, and Lord, I just pray that you provide a wife for Alan. He just really needs to get married. And then afterwards I'm like, thank you. And it's like, well, I'm, I know you should trust in Lord, man, but like, are you trying? Like literally it happened. So I, know, I understand is what I'm saying. I know what it's like to feel like you're like a leper everywhere you go. It's like, oh, there he is, the single guy. But, but here's the amazing, beautiful thing about Christianity as opposed to everything else. Because everything else, it, singleness is kind of actually a curse in every other worldview, right? Right? You have like 
like even in ancient Judaism, it's like the wor- your worst nightmare would be to have no offspring, it's nobody to carry, off, uh, carry on your name. Your lineage dies out with you. That is the worst thing possible. And other religions, other faiths and whatever, it's like you being single are unwanted, right? But in Christianity, it's completely different because now in Christianity, all of us, <laughs> when Jesus comes back, all of us are going to be single again. Um, <laughs> but you have in the Bible someone who always loves you and loves you unconditionally, better than anybody else. And statistically, you're probably going to get married if you're single and you want to be married. Statistically, probably. Um, but even if not, Jesus can love you in a way that no one else can. And then gives singleness as a gift. Like marriage is a gift, singleness is a gift. That's what the Bible talks about. And you can use that gift to his glory no matter what. And being single, I did a lot of awesome things. I really did. I try to maximize my time as, po- as much as possible. Doesn't mean that I didn't have days that I was down and felt lonely and all those things. But I also understood like God gave me that season of singleness and now he's given me a family. And I'll talk about that in the next point. So you can see your situation not as a curse, but as a gift. Like God wants me at this moment for whatever reason to remain single. So how can I maximize this so that when I'm married, I don't look back and go like, wow, I wasted so much time trying to make things work with people that it really didn't matter, right? Even in the Bible, it talks about Isaiah chapter 56, talking about like people that were not able to have children would be like kind of like uh, seen as, um, I don't know, know, the word's not coming to my mind, but like not good. But here in Isaiah, it talks about, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. For thus the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So your greatest fear in those days having your name cut off and no one remembers you, God says, I will give you a place in my house. Your name will never be cut off. And that's because God gives us an identity that cannot be shaken. Because our worth is not tied up in the eyes of fallen people. It's in his love. Our deepest desire at at the core of it is basically like we want to be both known and loved. To just be loved but not known feels superficial. But to be known and not loved is our worst nightmare. And we're afraid oftentimes that the more people know us, the less they're actually going to love us. And that's why people are thinking like, well, maybe we should live together before we get married just to make sure that this all works. And you're constantly evaluating each other, constantly measuring. And the second you see some ugly, then it's like, oh, I don't know if I want to marry that. But here's the difference. With God, 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So in Christianity, there is somebody who knows you better than anybody else. That's God. And he knows you and he loves you unconditionally. Like there's only so much dirt we can tell about ourselves to other people and show to other people. 
And then there's dirt that like we have that we don't even know that we have because we're not God and God's the one who's offended by it. And yet he still loved you. This is the, the gospel. Romans chapter five, verse eight. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think of your most like pathetic moment, the ugliest sin, the worst you. That's, that's the you that Jesus thought of when he died on the cross. And when you know that, that like it doesn't matter what I have done or will do, but Jesus still loves me, that empowers you and frees you from needing to fake it to somebody else. Because ultimately at the end of the day, like I am known and I am loved and I don't need you to affirm me eternally because I already am eternally affirmed. So it's beautiful. This is actually what made uh, C.S. Lewis, the famous author, uh, become a Christian. He was on a walk with J.R. Tolkien who actually led him to the Lord, you know, Lord of the Rings guy. And they were walking down a path and they're talking about like myths, right? And basically the concept that was put to C.S. Lewis was, you know, like we, we think of mythological creatures and we think of all these different stories, but what if, what if there's actually like a greater story behind all this that makes us so interested in these other myths and stories, right? Like, so, so think about this. What if there's this ultimate story of love that actually happened? That every other story, every other narrative arc, every Disney movie is just like hinting at, right? Like the hero, the villain, right? The problem, Jesus comes down, dies for us, sacrifices himself for us, and then we get to be with him. Like that's the happy ever after, right? What if, what if there's actually a story behind all of that that's actually true? And what I aim to say is that story is true. And that's the story of the gospel. And so for us, we can have a firm identity because Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So if you're hidden in Christ, you're secure and there's nothing that can shake you. Number two, the gospel guards our hearts by giving us a high calling and fulfilling work for both single and married people. So at this point, I have to talk about like where Christianity has failed majorly in the past two decades when it comes to the story of marriage and singleness. And what I'm really talking about is purity culture. Purity culture largely was like the biggest failed project of the past 20 years. Maybe not the biggest, but one of them. And that's basically, uh, you know, remember the book, if you're old enough, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, written by Joshua Harris, um, which had all these like crazy weird quotes, like, when God knows you're ready for the responsibility of commitment, he'll reveal the right person under the right circumstances. So if, basically, if you're still single, that's because you're not ready, and God needs you to get ready, so better clean up your life. Because he's not going to give you a person that, uh, you know, one of his beautiful angels if you're just, you know, lazy and whatever. So it's, it's like this legalistic weird stuff. And then he talked about, like, dating. He hates the word dating because dating is practicing divorce. So we don't date. We only court. And so he had all these concepts. And then Joshua Harris, years later, recanted the whole book. And he's not even a Christian anymore. 
But every single purity conference kind of like took up the stuff about like, we're going to like commit to like being abstinent and we're going to totally be pure and we're not going to look at porn and we're going to do all this. And, and like all it was was like thinking of tricking people to take their idols and delay them. Right? We didn't deal with the heart issue. We were dealing with the symptoms. So people looked at their addiction to pornography or the fact that people were obsessed with relationships and we didn't deal with the heart idol. We are dealing with the symptoms. Yeah, you're looking at porn. So basically what you got to do is, is just remember that God's going to make sex awesome when you're married. And so your idol is still sex, but you're just waiting until you're married to practice your idolatry. So what's the problem? The problem is, we didn't give a vision for marriage, a vision for singleness, a vision for sex, a vision for gender. And so what happens is people have these idols in their hearts, and they make an idol out of marriage. They make it an idol out of a person. And all, your ultimate hope and dream is like, I just need to get in a relationship. I just need to be with someone who loves me. But Pastor John Mark, John Mark Comer has this great quote about Marriage needs to be beyond something else. He says, marriage is a means to an end. It exists for friendship, yes, but also to partner with God for the remaking of shalom or peace. Couples who exist simply for one another are doomed to failure. If the point of your marriage is your marriage, it will collapse on itself. If the end of your relationship is your relationship, it will self-destruct. And so this is where people get in like dating relationships simply because it's like, well, I like him, and she likes me. So there you go. We should date. You know, I need to tell them that I like them because I have these feelings. And I'm not saying, like, that's wrong, but you should at least be critical and be like, wait a minute. Just because you have feelings doesn't necessarily mean you have to act on your feelings. You should ask yourself, is this a wise decision? Right? Because your heart is, the Bible says, deceitfully wicked who can know it. So here's, here's the question. And maybe you've done this before. I, I did this when I was, like, in college. You're like, Lord, if you don't want me to be with this person, take my feelings away. Wait five minutes. My feelings are still here. It must be game on, you know? And, and here's the thing. I don't know of any Bible verse that says that God will take away your desire from things that you should know are wrong, right? Like, in the Garden of, uh, Garden of Eden, God could have just taken away the desire for the apple, apple, fruit, whatever. And he didn't because to not do the things that you feel like doing is called self-control, which is the fruit of the spirit, right? So just because you have feelings doesn't mean that you have to act on your feelings. Maybe. I'm not saying that you're like, when you get married, you have to like marry somebody who's like logically a good choice and you have no emotion whatsoever. But what I am saying is, what is the vision for your relationship? I said this all the time as a youth pastor, before you date someone, you should be able to answer the question, why can't you just be friends? And that should tell you something, right? And, and most people are like, oh, you can't, well, you shouldn't like make out with your friends. So I don't know, right? <laughs> because you're not really thinking it through. Like what is God going to do with you and your spouse? What, what work, what task does he set before you? Like for me, Obviously, most of you guys know, I married a single mom of three. I became an instant dad. And with that came a lot of opportunities, but also a lot of challenges. I had no idea how to, like, raise kids, 
right? Like I hung around teenagers for like 10 years being a youth pastor, but I never really even held a baby in, until Tatum. So for me, there's like a lot of, uh, lot of adapting, a lot of changing. It's, it was, especially first year, so difficult. And I'm sure that Jenna's gonna talk about that too when we do the Q&A. But for me, I had a clear vision from God as to why I was entering into this marriage. Why her in particular? Not, not just because she's amazingly beautiful and, and overall a great friend and companion, but I also had a vision that God gave me for what we were going to do as a family. And so for you, that's the question. Like, what does God want to build with you and your significant other? What is he working towards? Because the fact of the matter is you're going to have a calling on your life, right? Not just pastors or worship leaders, but you have a calling. God wants you to do something. Do you think that he doesn't have any opinions about who you do it with? Somebody else was another unique calling on their life. And Lord willing, it's complimentary that you guys come together and you're better together than you would be apart. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Here is the story of marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here, translation, what God's word says is that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Christ is the groom, we are the bride. And so there's amazing parallels that happen in marriage that tells us about who God is. And so when you start to become selfish and you realize your selfishness in marriage and you're, you realize that you have to sacrifice, put down your agenda, it's not about you having your plan and she has her plan and you're aligning, but you're one flesh. You make decisions as a unit. And that means like when I was single, people want to hang out. It's like, all right, yeah, I'm good. Look at my calendar. Here I go. And then I remember like the week after I got back from my honeymoon, I was like talking to Kenny Jastrzemski and he's like, hey, when do you want to hang out? I'm like, oh, I have to ask somebody else first if that works with our calendar. This is strange, right? Like, I wasn't upset about it. It's just a difference in the way they approach my decisions. I'm not just designed for me. I'm designed for a family. And that, where it really gets confusing is parenting because then it's like you're both just kind of looking at the Bible and saying, I hope this works, and then let's make this decision for our kids and, and for our family. And hopefully this is, you know, we're going to homeschool them for this season. And you're looking down the road, and you're like, wow, this could be really good, or this might be a terrible decision. And I'm, but at the, at the same time, I'm not making that decision by myself, right? I'm doing that as one unit. And wait a minute. That's kind of like my relationship with God, isn't it? Right? Like, it's not, I have my plans, and then God has his plans. I want to be able to be submitted to God's will, right? So you're starting to see that picture, and that's what marriage is designed to do. And the times that you're like really ticked off at the person that's your, your husband or your wife, you're remembering, wait a minute, the sin that I do against God is so much worse, and yet he forgave me. Who am I to hold this bitterness against her? So it's an amazing place in marriage for sanctification and for affirmation. Because in marriage, God designed it once again that you would be known and loved. So People that want to like live with each other before they get married, here's the problem with that. 
it's still about an evaluation. It's, all right, so just make sure that this all works. And, you know, I don't know if I like that thing that I see them do. And you don't really know who that person is until you live with them anyway. So, but realize when you make a commitment in marriage, what are you doing? You're saying, no matter what happens, I'll never leave you. Think about the incredible security that gives somebody else. You can be exactly who you are at your, your worst, right? And no matter what you do, I'm here for you. And I want to make you better. I'll point it out, right? But I'll point it out in love so that you can be more like Jesus. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? But when you don't have that, you don't have that commitment, then it's like, well, I don't know if I want to tell them because if I tell them, they'll break up with me. But imagine the confidence you can have that no matter what, they'll be, they'll be on your side. Even when they're critiquing and saying, you really shouldn't have said it that way. And, and like a billion times that my wife has told me, like, you are really cold and emotionless. <laughs> you know, like, you shouldn't have said it that way, right? And I'm talking to other people, and like, you need to apologize to that person. But like, when she says that, I know at the end of the day, she does that because she wants to make me better. Not because she's looking at it and says, I don't know about this. It's beautiful. And that's exactly what the gospel is. Unconditional love. Like God describes his love in the book of um, Hosea, where the prophet Hosea is told to go marry a prostitute. And Hosea goes, why am I doing this? This makes no sense. She's cheating on me continually. And God says, that's like my relationship with the people of Israel, that they're continually unfaithful to me, but yet I'm still pursuing after them. It's a beautiful picture. And that's exactly what the gospel provides. Now, a quick word on singleness, because I know there are plenty of people here that are single. You may probably know the verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 says, um, Paul says, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the world. Uh, sorry. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. So he, he's talking about, like, listen, you don't have to get married in order to feel worthy and valuable of affection because God has given the church as a community and he's given himself to be there for you. And so it gives people an option. They don't have to get married. In fact, the Bible talks about it as the Greek word is charisma, which is the same thing as, like, when we talk about spiritual gifts, like gifts of tongues and whatever. Singleness is a gift like that. And so the question is, can I be more effective for the kingdom of God living as a single person in the season or as a person in a relationship? I want to maximize my time here on the earth. I want to be able to reach people for Jesus. Lord, what do you want me to do at this, this stage of my life? And so for me, it was uh, 2017, I think, Christmas, where I was going through this, this place where I was, like, fed up, right? Like, I'd been on a billion dates. None of them worked out. I felt like I was just trying, you know? And, like, people would say, like, just give them another chance. And I'm like, but I'm bored. I don't know if I like this person at all. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, logically, it makes sense. But I just don't think it works, you know? And so I remember praying to the Lord, and I said, Lord, do you want me to just be single forever? And just, like, I'll give up. Like, it'll be easier for me to just... Check the box and be like, all right, I'm not going to think about it anymore. I'm just going to tell people I'm going to be single forever. Maybe that's what I have to do, right? I'm like, that would stink. Like, I always wanted to be married, but, like, maybe that's what I got to do. And so I was praying, and then I felt like the Lord gave me Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. 
And this is Christmas. This is before Jenna, by the way. The verse says, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. And so I looked at that, and I was just like, that's a really confusing verse. But I was like, maybe, maybe what God wants me to do is not think about, like, what marriage or what relationship would be most effective in evangelism or outreach or youth pastoring or whatever. Maybe what God wants me to do is think of family as a ministry, period. And I just wrote that in my journal. I was just like, I have no idea what that means, so I, I wrote it down. Four months later, I'm out to uh, uh, Bridgeway Diner, which is now closed, but I'm at Bridgeway Diner with Jenna, and I asked her the question, what is one thing that you fear the most right now? And she says, I'm afraid that my kids will grow up not knowing Jesus. And that verse came back to my mind. I went, oh, no. <laughs> it's like, that's what God was talking about this whole time. It was so weird and so bizarre. I was like, whoa, that's crazy, right? But that's when God was putting the seeds in my heart of like, I want you to become an instant dad. That was my calling. It's not a calling for everybody, but for me, that's what he wanted me to do. So, but the question is, do you have a sense of purpose and calling from the Lord? Period. Because once you have that sense of calling and purpose, then you'll know the kinds of tools that you need in order to be able to accomplish it. You'll know where to move, what job to take, what kind of person that you should be in a relationship with because you have a clear conviction from the Lord. And also know, as a single person, if God is giving you the season of singleness, he will equip you for it. He will give you the opportunities to maximize that time. And realistically, if you're, statistically, you're probably going to get married if you want to be married. Not always, but statistically, you will spend more time being married than you will be single. So what are the things that you can do now that you will not be able to do later on? I know one. Make a lot of money. Save, save your money, just bury in the ground, and when you get married, just be like, oh, I don't have any money, and just, I'm just kidding. It's a joke. <laughs> Lastly, See how much time we have. I know this is a lot of information. Nine, darn. Okay. Oh, this is going to be a very difficult one to go through fast. Uh, I'll try to do this in five minutes because I know you guys have been sitting for a long time. The last way that the gospel guards our hearts is gives us a grounding for sex and gender. Oh, I really shouldn't rush to this one, but I'm going to try anyway. And then we can always talk about it later. So here's the question. What is... Sex for. Now, the world might say something like, well, when two people love each other, then, you know, then they're intimate and things like that. But scientifically, statistically, here's what the Journal of Marriage and Family says. People who report the lowest levels of sexual satisfaction are promiscuous singles with frequent sexual encounters. Okay, so that's the, that's the science right there. So the question is, should there be any prohibitions around certain kinds of sexual activity? Like, should we put limits and say, like, you shouldn't do that, but you should do this? And because it seems like some people are hurt very deeply by a misuse of the good gift that God gives us. So that's a good question, right? Here's another question. Are gender roles socially constructed? Or is there something behind the fact that there are male and female that God created? Is there any real difference between men and women? Now, a lot of people knock Christianity for being rigid or suppressive, but have you considered the fact 
that um, the alternatives are not very good. For instance, if you are an atheist, you believe uh, evolutionary, the evolutionary process through materialism, then what happens is love is just a chemical reaction in your brain. That's it. Right? Like that feeling that you have, like, oh, it must mean something. It doesn't mean anything. It's literally just like we can define exactly what chemicals are going around in your brain and the hormones that are released and things like that. That's all it is, right? So there's no cosmic significance to the fact that you feel in love with somebody else. And in, in fact, the atheist Sam Harris would put it this way. He says, everything we do is for the purpose of altering our consciousness. Or everything that we do is basically to make us feel certain things. We form friendships so that we can feel certain emotions like love and avoid others like loneliness. William Provine of Cornell University says, free will as traditionally conceived simply doesn't exist. There's no way the evolutionary process as currently conceived can produce a being that is truly free to make choices. So if you're an atheist and you're a materialist, then basically here's, here's your option. You have no free will because you're just reacting to chemicals. Things are just happening, right? And love is an illusion. That sounds very pessimistic, but I mean, that's, that would be your belief if that's what you believe. And then marriage kind of seems arbitrary, doesn't it? Like, animals don't get married. <laughs> like, why would humans have to get married? What, what would be the purpose of that? And why would there be any ethics around sex to begin with? And so the atheist Bertrand Russell, who was a um, very famous philosopher of the last century, he said the difficulty of arriving at a workable sexual ethic arises from the conflict between the impulse to jealousy and the impulse to polygamy. So he's like, well, if, if these are the feelings that you have, like in the animal kingdom, no one gets raped. There is no such thing as like relationships between animals, right? It just happens. Like this is how they procreate. So then we come to humans and it's like, we know that there are certain sexual practices that are obviously evil and wrong, rape being one of them. But then why? Why is it wrong? On materialism, it's very difficult to tell why, especially if we are the, the, you know, the products of evolution. And it seems like, to me, I don't, I don't know about you, love seems to be something more transcendent than feelings. Like, if we could produce a machine that just made us feel like we're in love all the time, nobody would want that. You want to actually have a relationship where you're in love. But the Bible has an easy answer. It says that love is something that transcends human experience. Psalm 103, verse 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. That love itself is something that came from God. It's not just a chemical reaction in your brain, in other words. And that marriage is something sacred and beautiful because it points to the creator, right? So reducing it to feelings or an arbitrary contract actually ruins it. I mean, just like, let's go back to the Disney movie, right? That you're watching a movie, you're like, well, we're all just products of evolution, and it's just, you know, different chemicals firing in your brain and whatever. Like, it just ruins all the romance, and all of us know deep down inside that there's something actually there, right? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, 
have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in summary, because I just read a huge section, and I know we're going long. God created Adam and Eve, male and female, right? That was his design, and gave them a job to do, to have dominion over all of creation, to subdue it, to create culture, to create music and art and all these different things, to build cities. And so in summary, both sex and gender are gifts from God. He instituted and created both. So, and that design was sex for one man and one woman designed for our enjoyment and God's glory. And not just for procreation, although that is the natural byproduct of having sex, is that children would be the beautiful result of God's design. And that's why God created sex as a bonding element between husband and wife in marriage. Sex is the most intimate thing that you could do with somebody else. It's the most vulnerable you can be with somebody else. And so when people are practicing sex outside of marriage, they're either ruining the bonding component, which is natural and, and scientific. That's what happens as the chemical reaction in your brain to bond to somebody else, to create that security. And you have to either break that bond and disassociate from that bond, or you enter into a relationship that's completely unhealthy. And then when you have sex with somebody that you shouldn't have sex with, and you enter into a relationship that probably that person's not good for you, it makes it harder to leave because of that bonding element. And so it gets messy, right? However, in Christianity, it's simple. That you can be the most intimate and vulnerable with somebody else, and they'll never leave you. They'll never forsake you. And that's your greatest fear is like, if I give myself to this person, are they going to leave me? Are they just going to use me? But in marriage, you're saying, no, we both give each other give ourselves to each other equally. And so now with gender, it's never seen as distinct from sex in the view of the Bible because those male and female distinctions are distinctions that God himself had created. And although they're distinct, they're both equal. It's, it's kind of like a person who goes to college and becomes like a, a, a guy who's into coding makes a lot of money, and a guy who's a construction, construction worker never went to college but makes a lot of money. It's like, which one's better? They have different gifts, and they're flourishing in those different gifts. Male and female are distinctions that God created with different functions. However, they're both beautiful, and we need each other to exist. That's the way he designed it. You can't have a, a world just with men or a world just with women. We both need each other. But with our postmodern society, they want to blur the distinctions of gender. And not to say it's not confusing all the time. Not to say that people don't have answers sometimes. However, to blur the distinctions and to completely erase them is to ignore the fact that there is a gift to being a man, a gift to being a woman, and there's weaknesses to both. So this is, here, here's the problem, and this is like extracurricular, but the feminist movement is in opposition to the gender equal, um, uh, transgender movement. And that's because one is saying we want to elevate women, like the Me Too movement. We want to look out for women. But then the other one says, well, we want to change the definition of what a woman is. But you can't have both. It's contradictory. So because we want to elevate women, we also have to define what a woman is in order to support them and lift them up, because it's true. There are oppressed people groups, and we can say transgender people are oppressed as well. But 
in order to accurately be able to support and help them, we have to be clear about our biblical convictions and definitions of what those things mean. Otherwise, we're not going to help anybody. And we want to help people. That's what it means to be a Christian. So, I'm going to close with this. Our masculinity and femininity are a part of us, but it doesn't define us at the end of the day. And that's sadly what a lot of people do is they, they put their trust and identity in something other than God. But as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. So here's where I'll, I'll leave it for you guys today. Do you have your identity in something other than God? Have you allowed your heart to wander away from the things of God? And today, you're kind of like on the edge because maybe the thing that you're trusting in isn't, isn't fulfilling the needs that you have. Maybe that relationship that you put all of your hopes in isn't working out the way that you wanted. Or maybe you're doing great, right? Because your idol's doing great. But what's gonna happen when that thing's taken away? Why not instead have the proper order? Love God first so you're able to properly love everybody else. I love my wife first so that I can love my children secondly and properly. To love my children over my wife is to actually hurt my children. And to love God above everything else is to properly love everybody else. So let's, let's pray.